I think one of the things that I love about my job, lots of things that I love about my job, but one of the things that I love the most about my job is I feel like the work that I do has relatively few occupational hazards. And I like that. I like the idea that, that what I do is generally fairly safe. The stool, if the stool is sturdy and the table holds, right, like I'm not going to have any sort of accident in the next couple of days. If I say something that uh, you don't appreciate, well, I'm on the screen right now, so you could throw stuff and yell and do whatever. It doesn't affect me any. Like I'm just, I'm pretty buffered, pretty insulated from very uh, negative things happening while I'm, doing what I did. In fact, I would say that probably the job that I have doing this really only has one occupational hazard, though it is a severe one. The occupational hazard of this job uh, is hypocrisy. Right? Everybody knows that those who can't do teach. Well, in fact, I wish everybody uh, knew that. My wife seems to have this crazy notion that I'm actually going to do the stuff that I talk about on Sunday mornings, which I wish somebody would disabuse her of that notion. I keep saying to her, listen, if I could do this stuff, I wouldn't be teaching it. But anyway, she seems to have this expectation. But the truth of the matter is that at some level, every single Sunday when I stand up and, and we open the scriptures together, we talk about this life that Jesus is inviting us into, this Jesus-shaped life for a Jesus-shaped kingdom, um, I'm engaging in an act of blatant hypocrisy because um, there's never a Sunday where I stand up and teach something out of the scriptures that I myself have totally mastered with the help of Christ and the Holy Spirit in my life. But it's on a week like this one when I, when I feel that heaviness of hypocrisy uh, pretty heavily, knowing that what we're going to talk about this morning is actually one of the areas where I would grapple the most in my life of faith. All this month in this series, Life to the Full, we've been talking about the barriers that we experience to living this full and fulfilled life that Jesus promises to those who live a life of faith. Jesus said, I came that you'd have life and have it to the full. And some stuff in our life robs us of that fullness. And we've talked about things like busyness and imbalance in our life. We've talked about this um, grand notion that I need to find this purpose, this grand purpose that God has for my life and uh, how that can screw up our sense of fulfillment. We've talked about how finances can screw up our sense of living a fulfilled life. And last week we talked about how fear can undermine that sense of fullness and satisfaction. Uh, and this morning, the, what we're addressing is probably, I'm going to say, one of the most fundamental realities of a life of faith, one of the most foundational and important, one of the most essential, and one of the most difficult, and one of the ones that I struggle with probably more than any of the other things that we've talked about in this series, and that's the issue of relationships. I think that if anything is going to steal our sense of fullness and fulfillment in our life with Christ, or on life in general. It's going to be the brokenness that we experience at the level of relationships. Because truth be told, relationships are actually, I believe, the foundational thing in the fabric of existence. That's relationships in the fabric of life. That is the foundational fabric 
in the, in the fabric of life. Like this is what it's actually all about. And I say that at least in part because of what I believe to be true about God. In Genesis chapter 1, starting verse 26, it says this. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image and in our likeness. This is the very first introduction that we have. This is the first chapter of the Bible. Our introduction to the God who the Bible says is there, the God who lies behind all of reality, the God from whom all of creation flows, who is the, the source of being and existence in the universe. And right from the first time we meet God, what we discover about God is that there is an us-ness to his nature. Let us make mankind in our image. Christian theologians from the beginning have read this verse and have interpreted it in terms of what has come to be known in Christian theology as the teaching of the Trinity, the tri-unity of God, that God, though he is one God, exists eternally as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, the, the original Jewish readers wouldn't have read that out of the text, but Christian theologians have always seen a hint of the three-in-oneness of God. And the teaching of the Trinity is essentially this. If God, if there's one God who exists as three persons, what that means is that ultimate reality in the universe and the ground of all being and existence is a community. Community is at the core of what it means to be. Um, Early church theologians used to use a Greek word to describe the life of God who is one but three persons engaging with each other. And the word was perichoresis. Uh, In the word choresis, you hear our English word choreography, a dance. And in the word peri, peri just means around, like a perimeter, to dance around this eternal divine dance of engagement with each other. More literally, the term means to make space for, to encircle or encompass or even embrace. God himself has lived, is at the very core and fabric of his being, a divine embrace that is eternal and mutual and self-sacrificing, this perpetual divine embrace of each other. There's a a ninth century monk by the name of Bernard of Clairvaux who said that for all of eternity the Father has kissed the Son, the Son has received the kiss of the Father, and the Holy Spirit is that kiss. It's this divine interaction of ultimate intimacy that forms the basis of all reality, and that reality encompasses us. The the text says, let us make mankind in our image. It goes on to say this, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. He blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. God says at some point, let's make a creature that reflects what we are like in and to the world. And so he creates mankind who images God in our us-ness. Right? Notice that the making of mankind in God's image is actually a statement about the plurality of mankind. He made them in his image. It's the themness of humanity that reflects the image of God. It's the way that we relate 
to each other. It's, it names male and female. It's about a community of diversity where complementary and different individuals are coming together into a themness that then, it says, uh, multiply and fill the earth. That is an ever-expanding, ever-growing community of diversity existing together in this divine embrace of mirroring the community that exists in God and that produced humanity in the first place. It is human community is at the core of what it means to be a person. It's woven into the fabric of life. In his book, When Helping Hurts, uh, Brian Fickert says that all of existence is encapsulated by four relationships. The spiritual relationship we have with God, the psychological or emotional relationship we have with ourselves, the social or communal relationship we have with each other, and then all the relationships that we have with our surrounding environment, whether that's political, societal, ecological, economic, religious, cultural, whatever it is, all the relationships that we have with our environment. And what Brian Fickert says is that poverty because his book's ultimately about poverty. He says, poverty is what we experience when those relationships are broken. And in essence, that's what we've been talking about for this whole series. That we experience impoverishment in our being when our relationship with our environment is broken. When we get screwed up ideas about what it means to live life with a purpose or when we get screwed up ideas about how to live our economic life, um, we experience impoverishment in our being. When we, when we, when we um, experience brokenness in our relationship with ourselves because of fear or because of, of busyness and imbalance, and we get off with ourself, we experience an impoverishment in our being. And actually, throughout the series, the solution was always something to do with our relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Right? Whether that's Sabbath, or servanthood, or stewardship, or submission, it was always a spiritual discipline that brings healing to the relationships that we have. And when we talk about human community and the role that it plays in a living life to the full. That's what we're talking about this morning. That's that fourth relationship. We experience impoverishment of being when there's brokenness in the way that we relate to each other, which at one level is kind of bad news because there's brokenness in the way that we relate to each other all the time for all of us, right? We are always experiencing something less than the fullness of relationship with each other Sometimes that's actually, sometimes that's for personal reasons. As essential as community is, that's how elusive it is because of personal reasons, right? Could be personality reasons, right? I'm, I'm slowly coming to terms with the reality that um, I am an introvert and not an extrovert. I'm a very social person. I'm a very personable person, but, but I'm actually quite introverted. And what I'm discovering is that in an environment like this, when I'm engaged with all of you, I enjoy being engaged with all of you, and I find it incredibly um, draining. And so when I leave this place, I, I try and withdraw from relationship, and that withdrawal can, can actually cut me off from the kind of community God wants me to experience. 
But it's not just for actually introverts, it's extroversion that does it too. Because I've lived in that world too, try to behave in that way. And I know that extroverted relationships are often extroverts like as many friendships as humanly possible. Which means that the danger is always that you have a web of human community that is a mile wide and an inch deep. Right? You've got 1,200 Facebook friends and nobody knows what's going on in your life. Sometimes it's because we buy into like the western cultural myth of rugged individualism. You don't need anybody. Just pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Sometimes it's hurt from other people and now we're afraid to engage in relationship. Sometimes it's not actually interior. It's personal but not interior. It's more the choices that we've made. Choices of busyness. Which is again where I can sabotage my experience of community. Um, Because I work and Krista works full time and we're both in school and we have four little kids and our life is really, really busy. And people get pushed to the side. Or technology does it. Uh, There's a psychologist named Sherry Tuckle. Truckle? Tuckle? Something like that. Who, uh, Who has done some research on the impact of technology and specifically smartphones on human relationships. And she says, when you engage with your smartphone, what you are doing is you're disconnecting yourself from the human community that surrounds you. So much so that she says, in a, in a conversation at a restaurant between two people sitting across from each other, the presence of an upside-down cell phone in the middle of the table can statistically, in measurable ways, diminish the amount of engagement in conversation and it can diminish the amount of empathy that the two people feel for each other. The very threat of the cell phone sitting there, it's like symbolically saying, look, at any time I can unplug from this conversation and just pick up my phone and disappear, right? And that the existence of it, even nobody touches it, it diminishes engagement and it diminishes empathy. Because we live in this world rather than in this world. Actually, uh, Tuckle says um, one of the most human things that we do is have face-to-face conversations. But now because of technology, all of our conversation is mediated. Social media, right? We put things in between our faces. So we're not talking face-to-face anymore. We text somebody who's 15 feet away. And the more things that you put in between you and the other person, the more distant the relationship comes. Never mind because you're tempted then to put a mask on between you and them through Facebook profiles and whatever. We make choices um, that separate ourselves from each other. But uh, that's just not the way that it's supposed to be. We're invited into a very different kind of experience with each other. Actually, there's another layer to it if you think about it. It's not just the personal side. Like, I have stuff that I need to deal with. Once I've dealt with my stuff, there's still a risk that I'm not going to experience community because you haven't dealt with your stuff. Right? So I deal with my introversion or extroversion, with my individualism. I deal with my hurt and my pain. I deal with my busyness. I deal with technology. I deal with social media. I do all of that work. But now I'm dependent on you to do all that work, and you're either going to do it or you're not going to do it. And even if you do do it, now I'm dependent on you to actually make a space, right? That word perichoresis means to make room. I'm dependent on you to make room for me in your life, which kind of depends on affinity and fit and do we click. And there's so much at play. At some level, when I started to think about this, I started to think it's almost surprising that we ever find human connection. 
because it's so challenging and elusive, which means that we have to be extra committed to nurturing it among us if we're going to experience the fullness of life that God wants for us. And for me, for us here at Southridge, that means committing ourselves to three disciplines that the folks who work in the connection department who are responsible for life groups and so on, they've been talking to us about this for years. Three disciplines that create the kind of that create the opportunity for the kind of community that brings fulfillment to life. And the first one is this, you gotta show up, right? The the connection uh, team talks about a different frequency of contact. You have to actually change the amount that you're interacting with people around you in order to give community the opportunity to take root. And that's hard for us because life, the way we live it, is an individual sport, right? Like, we work alone, right, in our little cubicle farms or, uh, you know, in our spot in the factory or in, with our laptop at Starbucks or at our home office. Like, we telecommute. We work by ourselves. We drive alone, right? I, I've been laughing at the, you've heard about these HOT lanes, right? We have the HOV lanes in Burlington and Oakville, where if you have two people in your car, you can use the high occupancy lane. Well, now they're selling permits for that lane called the HOT permit. And now for 60 bucks a month, if you're by yourself in your car, you can still go in the lane. And the reason they're selling the permits is this. Less than 20% of the cars that drive that stretch of the 403 have two people in them and use the lane. It's like 18% of the cars. So they're kind of like, well, nobody's using the lane anyway. If you pay your money, you can. I know you're going to drive by yourself, but go ahead, drive in that lane. For 60 bucks a month. Right? We live by ourselves. We have this sort of suburban mentality of the backyard paradise where we're separated from our neighbors in the street, and whatever, just in our own little private enclave, right? We problem solve by ourselves, right? We used to need each other to answer questions. Hey, what do I do about this? And now between Google and YouTube, I don't need any of you for anything, right? Like, my computer can explain everything to me. We've just kind of made existence a, a solo sport. And that's not the way it's meant to be. In Acts chapter 2, the Bible says this about the early church. It says, every day they continued to meet in the temple courts. And they broke bread in their homes and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Listen to these words. Every day they continued, continually met together in the temple courts, they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. This was the ongoing substrata of reality within the early community called the church was the togetherness of being with each other in the temple and in homes, eating together, and the net result of that were glad and sincere hearts, a fullness of life and joy that was produced in the people. That's a far cry from my existence. I have a neighbor who lives behind me. His name is Sean, and we were trick-or-treating in the fall last year. And I said, it was kind of apologizing to him that we hadn't seen each other in quite a while. And he said to me, listen, he said, don't worry about it. So long as I see you once a season, I know we're still friends. Right? I was simultaneously relieved and horrified that I only had to see him once a season. But that once a season counts as friendship. That's that's not the kind of contact, that's not the kind of togetherness that creates the opportunity for us to experience relationship. We need to, to nurture the discipline of intentionality around being together. We've got to just show up. 
Right? Show up in environments like this on a Sunday morning. Friendship isn't going to be happen here, but this creates the opportunity for community, right? So show up here. Show up at Life Group. You know, Lifeline is coming up in a few weeks. Just show up. Be in places where community can happen. And show up, by the way, with margin. When, when people show up during the first song and they leave during the last song, you, you've kind of... And I understand there are reasons why people do that. And if that's the space you're in, feel free to do that. But, but if you're looking for community, that's not going to help you. Put 15 minutes of margin on either side of that experience. And you've created the space for human interaction. Not just when you come here, when you go everywhere. Create the space for human interaction to happen. We have to change our value grid about this. See, when I prioritize... The things that I prioritize and exclude relationship from my life pattern when I, when I minimize the amount of contact I have with people. All I'm doing is declaring my value system. That I care about these things more than I care about being in relationship with people. But you know what Jesus says? That the whole deal with life is loving God and loving people. That's the whole, the whole thing of life is relationship. There actually isn't anything more important than relationships. So let's start valuing relationship more than we value being productive, achieving things, making widgets, building another house, reading another book, whatever it happens to be. Let's actually value the thing that Jesus values. Put it in the calendar, right? Like just say, I need relationship time. Every Wednesday morning, we're going out for breakfast or whatever that looks like. But let's be committed to the intentionality of showing up, of putting ourselves in proximity to community. There's a second discipline. If the first one you could call showing up, the second one is joining in. Right? Actually showing up and engaging proactively. Right? Because you can show up in an environment like this and still not experience community because you've stood off to the side, you've stayed in the wings, you've been a wallflower or whatever, either because you are a little bit aloof to the whole experience or because you're feeling ignored by the people who are there. But it's possible to show up and to still not experience a sense of connection with the people around you and because it requires something of us to do that. And I think the reason... Maybe not all the time, but one of the reasons why this happens is because we show up in, a, in an environment like this with a mentality that there is an in-group and an out-group. And I think almost all of us assume that we're a part of the out-group and that somebody else is a part of the in-group. And we just stand around waiting for somebody else to invite us into the in-group. Right, we've heard that forever about this community. And it's one of the things we battle against, this reputation that Southridge is a bit cliquish, that people show up only to talk to the people that they already know and we're slow to invite other people in. I think it's a part of being in a small town mentality in Niagara that you know, we have our friends and we don't need new people or whatever the case may be. But, um, but you hear that. I've heard people say to me, because we're a Mennonite Brethren Church, so some many of the founding families of this church have German Mennonite last names. And I've had people say to me, well, I don't have a German Mennonite last name, so I'm not a part of the in-group. Well, if you talk to some of those folks who founded the church, their impression at this point, our church has grown by, you know, a thousand percent since, or whatever, I don't know what the number is. We've grown massively since those early days, and I kind of feel like I used to be central to this community, but now... All the new people are the in-group, and now I'm kind of on the outside. Everybody feels like I'm on the outside, and we wait for somebody else to invite us in. And the discipline 
of joining in is the discipline of hospitality. It's proactively being the one to invite people in. In Hebrews chapter 13, it says this. Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing so, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. The the discipline is hospitality. The Greek word for hospitality, by the way, uh, is uh, is a Greek word that means to love a stranger. In the Bible, love always means to make a sacrifice. So hospitality, literally speaking, is sacrificing of myself to meet the need of somebody who is currently a stranger. Perichoresis, making room to invite somebody else in in order to meet their need of community. That's what hospitality is. And the writer of Hebrews says that this is fundamental to what it means to be a part of the Christian community is to be the one who's opening up that space to invite people in. So I thought about three kind of layers of hospitality that I think we could nurture in our community. And the first is kind of like a public hospitality. Um, what we do when we're together as a big group. Right? I read this article this week and it said that everybody in the church community should make four commitments when they show up on a Sunday, right? or in, whenever we're getting together. Um, We should commit, the acronym was GIFT, G-I-F-T. Greet somebody you've never met. Introduce two people who don't know each other. Follow up with somebody you've recently met and thank somebody for something they've done. G-I-F-T. Greet someone new, introduce two people, follow up with somebody you just met, thank somebody for something they've just done. If every one of us showed up every week and did those four things, imagine how it would transform the feeling around our community. It would be revolutionary, the way people would feel invited. Now, that's not actual yet community, but that's the door. You've opened the door to hospitality. Because there's a whole second layer of hospitality that I would call private hospitality. There's nothing to do with what we do when we're all together, but it's that next step where you invite somebody then, perichoresis, you make room to invite somebody into your space, into your home into your table, what if we all made the commitment that two times a month we were going to have somebody into our home to sit at our table and to eat together with us that we wouldn't normally have sat down and eaten with? Somebody we didn't even necessarily know. And not somebody that we think, oh, I think we could be really good friends one day. Jesus says, when you invite people over to your home for dinner, like invite people who don't get invited anywhere. Invite the poor, invite the forgotten, invite the marginalized. Invite people who can't pay you back. Like be really intentional about, in, about doing hospitality in diversity, inviting people into our space um, in order to make room for other people. The third layer of hospitality would be personal hospitality. And this is where our connection department, they talk about a different kind of conversation. Once you've gotten past the public and into the private, you've set the stage for a different kind of conversation around that table to have conversation about stuff that you don't just get to talk about just anywhere, where people don't normally get the opportunity to talk about. To talk about stuff that's not surface stuff, but that's soul stuff. To ask questions, deep questions, and to listen to the answers, to hear somebody's story, to understand their journey, to get a a sense for who they are. You're inviting them in to the conversation. Now we're getting close 
to experiencing the kind of community that Jesus envisions, but we're not quite there yet. Because you don't just have to show up and practice intentionality, and you don't just join in and practice hospitality. You have to be real and practice vulnerability. Now, that's a hard one for me. I'm good at transparency, but I'm not good at vulnerability. And they're not the same thing. Chris Hewitt's wrote a book called Simple Spirituality where he distinguishes between those two things. I think it's a worthwhile distinction. See, transparency is when you share facts. You just disclose things, right? And, and if you've been around the church for any period of time, you know that I don't mind doing that. I don't mind telling stories where I look dumb. I don't mind admitting I'm a failure. I don't mind t- saying where I was wrong. I don't mind changing my mind. I don't mind apologizing for things. I will give honest answers to every question. I think I sometimes overshare. Like I... I forget where that boundary is of appropriateness and I say things to people and think afterwards, oh, I probably shouldn't have shared that with them. But I'm a very transparent person. What you see is what you get. Ask a question, you'll get an answer. But transparency is different than vulnerability because transparency leaves you in control. Right? Transparency is what a politician does when there's a scandal brewing. So you call a press conference and you tell everybody what you did. You just admit it and you apologize and you grab the narrative. They call it getting out in front of the story. You grab the narrative as a self-defense mechanism so that you can control the story and minimize the damage. That's transparency. Vulnerability is exposing a weakness and giving somebody else the opportunity to actually hurt you. The analogy Ewerts uses is of a dog. A dog's a very transparent creature. Wags its tail when it's happy, puts its tail between its legs. When it's defeated, you know exactly how the dog feels at every moment in time. But vulnerability is when the dog rolls over on its back and exposes its belly and says, this is it. This is the underside of who I am. It's the most vulnerable part of me. I'm doing this because I trust you. I know that you can hurt me as I show you the underside of who I am. But I'm doing this in trust and love. That's when we've arrived at community. In 1 Thessalonians, it says this, just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Paul says, our relationship is kind of like a mother breastfeeding her infant. An act that requires a bearing of yourself, an exposing of yourself, vulnerability. You're unprotected at that moment. But in the tender beauty of that exposing yourself skin to skin to the infant, You have created the delight in the mother and the delight in the child that offers an opportunity to bond together, to create connection. Now, I understand, this is secondhand, that it can also hurt. You are exposing yourself to the possibility of being hurt. But you can't get that bonded connection except through the vulnerability of self-exposure. And that's what Paul says to the Thessalonians. He said, that's what we did with you. We loved you so much that we, we actually exposed ourselves, our lives to you. I'm trying to be careful about the language that I use. We exposed our lives to you in a way that made us vulnerable and uh, 
He said, we, we delighted, it was our joy to not just share the gospel, to not just have a different kind of conversation, but to share our very lives, to share us, to be vulnerable and real, to invite you in, to create the space where you get to come into our lives. What does that look like? In James 5, we read, I read this verse all the time. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. It's about exposing the brokenness and the darkness about who you are and trusting the other person to receive that in a caring, pastoral fashion where they respond to you prayerfully, caringly, lovingly, lifting you up to God in a way that brings healing into your brokenness. And the beautiful thing about this verse is that it's a reciprocated thing. This isn't mentorship or counseling. This is what we do for each other. This is what it means to be real. This is what it means to invite the other person into your life in a way where you're showing each other who you really are, receiving that tenderly, carefully, lifting each other to God and experiencing healing on the journey together. That, my friends, that's the healing that comes through community. It struck me this week that the word hospitality and the word hospital are related. That somehow when we become these perichoresis kind of people, when we make room for each other and invite each other in, that's when the healing comes. And you don't do this vulnerability thing in the lobby after church. You don't do it in public environments. You don't do it with just anybody. There's a flow here. You have to show up, and showing up creates the opportunity to join in publicly and then privately and then personally. And once you've journeyed through there, then it's time for the vulnerability. But can you imagine the healing that would come if we found a way to be these perichoresis people to each other, to make room for each other and discover, the book of Hebrews says, that when we invite each other in, discover the kinds of healing angels we find in each other along the way. That's, that's my prayer for us. Let's pray together. Father, you've given us the gift of yourself. You've given us the gift of your son, You've given us the gift of each other. Would you give us the courage now, the grace, the trust to give and receive the gift of community with each other, to be those who kiss and are kissed with the kiss of your Holy Spirit that brings community into our midst. Teach us to be a making room kind of community. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.